Good morning. Those of you who joined us for the frigid Palm Sunday procession heard um, the reading from Mark's gospel about Jesus making the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And something about this Sunday and hearing that gospel passage read, um, it just really propels us, I feel like, into Holy Week. Um, It propels us into these final events of Jesus' life here on earth. Um, the, 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 The entry into Jerusalem, there's something seemingly unstoppable about it. It is bringing to a head everything that has been going on um, for for all of Jesus' life up to this point. Uh, Before Palm Sunday, Jesus is, he's butting heads with the leaders frequently. Um, He's attracting great crowds of followers. He's generally misunderstood by everyone, even those who love him, even his disciples. But before Palm Sunday, somehow you can still get the feeling that Maybe this will come to a nice, neat, and tidy resolution. Maybe um, his message will be, maybe they'll be taken on by the leadership in Jerusalem. Or maybe Jesus at least will be a reformer, somebody um, pretty radical, but nonetheless a reformer who can change the Jewish religion from inside, but not necessarily overthrow the leadership. All of this perhaps is going on prior to Palm Sunday, but when Jesus comes in, On Palm Sunday, when he comes in on the donkey, when he comes in with the great crowds, when he comes in making this not-so-subtle statement, this claim that I am the king of the Jews, it's at that moment that we realize that this final conflict is unavoidable, that something has to give. He's riding into this maelstrom of Jerusalem on Passover week with Herod. And Pilate, the Roman government, the Jewish leaders, seeing that Jesus is actually a threat to their power. And what about the crowds? Seeing this Messiah that they so desperately want, but is not prepared to save them the way they want to be saved. Something has got to give. Come Palm Sunday, as we look ahead into the weeks of Holy Week, the week of Holy Week, we know what's going to happen, and we, we sit here on this Sunday and we remember this entry to Jerusalem, and we realize that something has got to give. What is going to happen? I want us to pause there, thinking about Jesus. We're going to now turn our attention to Isaiah, and I'm going to connect these for you. Okay, we read from Isaiah about the servant of God. And when you read Isaiah, especially chapters, you know, 40 to 55, when you read these chapters, you get the same feeling that you start to get on Palm Sunday, that something's got to happen in Isaiah. Something's got to give. You have Israel, this people of God, who's been in exile. They've been punished for their disobedience, and they're crying out to God, and so God saves them. And yet they're still disobedient, and they still cry out to God, and God continues to offer his gracious hand. And Israel continues to blame God for their punishment. So, for instance, and in, we didn't read this, but in uh, verse uh, chapter 50, I think 49, verse 14, Israel cries out, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. You see what they're doing? Israel is blaming God. And we have this constant back and forth. Israel blamed God. God says, no, remember what I just did. I saved you from uh, from the Babylonians. 
I rescued you. I brought you back into Jerusalem. And they're saying, well, you still abandoned us. And God says, well, not really. You've actually abandoned me. The conflict in Isaiah is inevitable. It's building. The tension is building. Something has to happen. The problem in Isaiah, and it will be the problem as well in Jesus' day on Palm Sunday, is that Israel is convinced, absolutely convinced, that they need salvation from external sources, from corrupt leaders, from oppressive pagan governments, from the world around them. They are being oppressed, and they need deliverance from their oppressors. That is what Israel is convinced about. Now, on some levels, that's true. They were being oppressed. They were being led by corrupt leaders. They did need redemption from the evil around them. But they have a more desperate problem, and it's one that they don't want to recognize. The evil is not only outside of them, but primarily and most desperately, the evil is inside of them. Yes, they're being oppressed, but more desperately, they're separated from God. It's not like they're being oppressed and they know God and they love him and they're serving him and being obedient to him. No, they have completely rejected him. They've turned their backs on him. They've turned to other gods and to other things and to their own self-righteousness. And that is what they need salvation from. Yes, deliverance from the evil around them, but first, a deliverance of their hearts. It's happening in Isaiah, and it's happening on Palm Sunday when Jesus rides in on the donkey. Israel is desperately longing for a political Messiah. They think they found it in Jesus, and they are not happy when they realize that that is not what he has to offer. So into this conflict in Isaiah, we have this um, somewhat mysterious servant of the Lord, okay? So remember what's happening. Israel had been in exile. They've been delivered back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem. They're still seeing that they need help, that they need salvation. And so they cry out to God, why have you abandoned me? And God says, I haven't abandoned you. Show me where I've abandoned you. Look back on your history and tell me when I left you. No, time and time again I've offered my hand of grace to you, and time and time again you have rejected it. God says, it's not because of me that you're separated from me. It's because of your sin. It's because of your iniquity. It's because of the condition of your heart. Very convicting statements. Those immediately precede our passage this morning, the first part of chapter 50. And yet even then, in the midst of conviction, even then in the midst of God's calling Israel out for the status of their heart, he offers a hand of grace. And we hear the voice of the servant. This, the third of four, what are known as servant songs, the voice of the servant speaking God's grace to Israel. And so I want to look at Isaiah 50. Um, Carrie's going to put it on the screen, but maybe you've got a Bible or something on your phone. I encourage you to look at that. Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 9. And there are three things we need to see about the servant in this passage to understand what he's going to do for Israel and then to understand what Jesus is doing for us. 
The first thing about the servant is this. He is obedient. He is obedient. This is in stark contrast to Israel, who actually was called to be a servant of God, by the way. Stark contrast to us, frankly, although we too are called to be servants of God. He is obedient. Let's read verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah chapter 50. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. You see that? The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. One thing you have to understand, in the Bible, when it's talking about obedience, it will often talk about hearing God. And so you'll hear past, or you'll read passages about um, prophets or other, other servants hearing God. And hearing also meant doing. If you heard God, you then did what he said if you were obedient. And so when this is talking about the obedient servant and God opening up his ear, God is giving the servant a message. He's giving him a task, a mission, a duty. And when the servant hears that, he responds. Hearing God only is not obedience, right? Parents, is this right? If you ask your children to do something and they hear you, does that count? No. Hearing God is not obedience. Doing what you hear, that is obedience. And so the servant hears God and he obeys. And what does God give him? He gives him a word, right? He gives him to speak, to speak life into a destitute nation, to speak life into a disobedient people. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, verse 4, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. God has given the servant this message of hope to speak peace to those who are weary, to speak peace to those who are afflicted. And the servant is obedient. And he's offering God's grace to a disobedient people. Second thing about the servant, he is unjustly afflicted. So he is obedient and he's unjustly afflicted. Let's look at verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. You see that? The servant, he's giving his back, he's giving his face, he's welcoming this affliction that is being forced upon him. Now, if he was a disobedient servant, if he was not doing what he was supposed to do, if he was not serving God, you can say, well, maybe he had it coming. But he's not, is he? He's the obedient servant. He's doing God's will. He's, he heard what God said, right? And he's doing it. Yet even in his obedience to God, the servant is turned against. The very people that he came to serve, that he came to rescue, have turned against him. And they're striking his back. And they're plucking out his beard. 
His face is being disgraced and spat upon. And he doesn't fight back. He doesn't defend himself. We've got to remember this. This is not passive, okay? It's not like he's just sitting there and taking it and being passive because he's not a passive servant, is he? He's an obedient servant. He hears and he does. And so he must be hearing and doing God. And God is saying, take it. He's actively receiving the worst the world has to offer to him. And so his mistreatment is not a sign of weakness, but actually a sign of strength. Not a sign of passivity, but a sign of obedience. The servant is unjustly afflicted. And finally, the servant is confident in his vindication. He's confident that he will be vindicated by God. Let's look at verses 7 to 9. But the Lord God helps me. You see that but right there, verse 7? So he's talking about getting just totally beaten, but nevertheless, the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. No matter how disgraced I might seem, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who, who will declare me guilty? Stand up, he says. Bring your worst. Charge me. Bring me before God. Who can accuse me? He's confident. The Lord is near to him. He knows that no matter what happens, no matter what he goes through, no matter what they do to him, he will not be put to shame. Who can contend with someone who's got God on his side? Who could possibly stand up to him and be his adversary? Who can possibly declare him guilty? The Lord is near to him. And he's in the presence of God who is his vindication. He's confident. He knows that he's doing the will of God and that one day God will hear him and vindicate him. And so we hear, see, we hear the servant. We see the servant. Three things, right? Obedient, afflicted, and yet confident. And then if we were to read on in Isaiah a few chapters, and we will come to a Good Friday service, you will um, hear the servant, the fourth servant song read, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And in that passage, the followers of the servant are actually reflecting on what happened to him. And they reflect on his beaten face and his, his bruised and scarred back, all the torment that he went through. And here's what they conclude. He was wounded for our transgressions. And by his stripes, we are healed. The servant gave himself up to this. 
obediently and confidently so that his followers might be saved, so that his followers might be healed, so that his followers might be made right with God. And then Isaiah, they go on and they proclaim this message to the world. And do they get it right every time? No. Do they mess up? Yes. But in that last chapter of Isaiah, chapter 66, these followers are rewarded with a new heavens and a new earth. These followers of the servant who in many ways have suffered the same things he did are given new life. Now this is all fine and good, but what does it have to do with Jesus on Palm Sunday? What do you think a good Jewish rabbi, the son of God himself, was thanking when he rode into that city on that donkey. You think he knew this passage? You think he knew the fourth servant song to follow? I don't know. I mean, that's a hard question. We can't say what Jesus was thinking. There's no doubt in my mind that this is informing everything he's doing. He's riding in. He's receiving the accolades. He's being obedient to God, but he knows what is coming. He knows that he's a threat. He knows that Herod's not going to like it, that Pilate's not going to like it, that the Jewish leaders are not going to like it, and that finally the people aren't going to like it. He knows this. And yet his face is set like flint to the cross. Because he knows God will vindicate him. He knows God will redeem him. And so he doesn't waver. He doesn't flint. I mean, doesn't flinch. He sets his face like flint to God. I think Jesus knows he's a servant. He knows what's happening. And yet he goes through it willfully, obediently, lovingly. Friends, we are a fickle bunch of people. I include myself with that. We began this service praising God, shouting hosannas to the King of Kings. We're going to end this service complicit in the murder of Jesus, calling for a salvation that we do not need, calling for a salvation of what we want, but not of what God knows that we need. The service is a microcosm of our life, isn't it? We want Jesus. We want salvation, but we want it on our own terms, right? Salvation too often means Jesus needs to fix somebody else, but not me. When we look around at the problems in our lives, the things we need salvation from, maybe it's um, salvation in our marriage, maybe it's an alcoholism we don't want to admit, Maybe it's problems at school or problems with our family. Maybe it's secret sins in our life that we don't want to tell anybody about. The list could go on and on. And too often, we look at these things and we blame them on someone else, right? If Jesus would only fix my spouse, my marriage would be fine. If Jesus would only 
fix our relationship, I wouldn't have to visit those sites on my computer. If Jesus would only lower the stress at the office, I wouldn't need that extra drink every night. If only Jesus would fix somebody else, then my life would finally be okay. That's not the salvation we need, is it? We do, yes. There's evil in this world. There's oppression. There's Satan working at every corner. But at the end of the day, first and foremost, we need Jesus in our hearts. We need to know forgiveness of our sins. We need to know that God loves us and has redeemed us. And so we're being given the servant, Jesus, who's obedient. What does it say in Philippians? Obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're being offered a servant who is afflicted, taking the punishment we deserve, right? By his stripes, we are healed so that we might know God. We're being offered a servant who is confident, confident that God will vindicate him so that on the last day, whether they like it or not, on the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Herod will do it. Pilate will do it. The Jewish leaders will do it. The crowds will do it. And friends, every single one of you in this room will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord whether you want to or not. How are you going to receive that? How are you going to accept his forgiveness? How are you going to accept these great events of Holy Week? Will you accept them? God's extending his hand of grace. Will you um, accept that or will you be like the Israelites in Isaiah, constantly rejecting it, constantly turning away from it? Because if that's the case, it will be a painful thing on that last day when you have to bow your knee. As we move into Holy Week, as we go from the glory of Palm Sunday to the desperate solitude of Good Friday, and then to the joy of Easter. Let us reflect on our lives. Do we want the salvation that Jesus has to offer? Do we want to accept this servant, obedient, afflicted, and confident? And do we want to claim that in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have sent your servant, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to be afflicted for us, and to redeem us. I pray, Lord, that we would receive that in our hearts, that we might know your mercy, know your salvation, and serve this world as you have served us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in the name of Jesus to whom every tongue, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess is Lord of this world. Amen.